Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to local news and social artistry right here on KOPN, your community radio station out of Columbia, Missouri, 89.5 on your FM dial. Uh, each week, we have the pleasure of speaking with someone who's building a more humane world from the inside out. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and this week my guest is Gary Hill, Lincoln University alum and uh, chief of police at uh, Lincoln University, and I think I can say founder and director of Lulita. That's correct. The Lincoln University Law Enforcement Training Academy. Woo, that's a big one. <laughs> and, and a celebratory one, too. Uh, we, we're going to celebrate that whole thing here uh, through the hour. So, Gary, good to see you again. It's been a while. Thank you. I, I often see you often. I wave by you when I see you down there at the Capitol all the time. So, oh, it's like I, I never left your classroom. I see you so much. <laughs> <laughs> My little peace vigil down there on Wednesdays. Well, thank you. Uh, by the way, folks, uh, Gary and I are Zooming, uh, doing this recording and getting it ready for uh, broadcast uh, every Monday. So uh, I get to see Gary. I saw you first, I can't remember how many years ago when you came to Lincoln. 1992. Oh, wow. 1992. And uh, you probably got told that, well, you got to take this required health class. <laughs> yes, and, and I took the required health class, and uh, I thought it was such an easy class that um, I thought I could just uh, show up when I felt like showing up, and you proved me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you lost points or something? <laughs> uh, I have an F on my transcript from your class. <laughs> Gary Hill. One of the, I've had a few others that... Uh, went on to a matter of fact uh, just today i i got a, a linkedin message from terry wilson uh terry, terry was a football player you might remember terry yep uh flunked my cat my class twice <laughs> got an a the third time went back to uh his uh home in st louis uh became a city councilman yep uh now has been appointed the administrator of uh community over there um city administrator so you know this getting an f in a health class is just a teaching tool it's not a uh <laughs> well it's so funny because you know me and terry are fraternity brothers oh so <laughs> didn't know. all right so we always tell people if you fail Dr. Dalton's class, you're going to be successful. You're going to be somebody. <laughs> you have to fail that class. And you know, many people that I know that have failed your class have gone on to do great things. So that is the one thing that we all have in common. That is so funny. <laughs> well, he came back. Uh, did you come back and pass it uh, later? No, actually, I did not. I and I kept it. I did. Reason why I did, I said I needed that F. I needed that to show that I need to get my stuff squared away and ah. what I need to do to be successful. So I never, uh, I never took it took it over again to get it off my transcript. Oh, okay. So they let you graduate anyway. 
Oh, I, I can't remember. I took something else because uh, they had changed the curriculum at that point in time. So I took something else so that I could get the, the credit. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, 1992, did you come straight from Oklahoma? To... I did. Came and from Muskogee, Oklahoma. Muskogee, Oklahoma. Uh, I passed through it, but I, I don't know much about it. You're not missing much. <laughs> <laughs> I it's remember grown a little bit. It's about the size of Jefferson City now, so it's 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 grown a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, did you experience any black police officers in Muskogee? No, I didn't. Uh, but actually, my grandfather, uh, he was one of the first black police officers in Muskogee, Oklahoma, on my dad's side. Oh, so I was real young when he passed. Uh, but uh, oh. he was. Uh, I have pictures of him when he was uh, when he retired from the Muskogee Police Department. Mm -hmm. So didn't experience much, but um, I can say that probably uh, my inspiration to be in law enforcement came from an Oklahoma State Trooper, actually. Tell me about it. Um, so it was my senior year um, and my car had broke down. Mm -hmm. And so at the time we were living in Wagner, Oklahoma, which is probably about uh, 20 miles outside of Muskogee. And my car had broke down. And so I took my grandfather's old farm truck. And the only thing legal about that farm truck was me. <laughs> <laughs> so I was working at this uh, factory in Fort Gibson at the time, and uh, I didn't want to be late. So I just drove the truck and I was speeding. Didn't know that I was speeding because the uh, speedometer didn't work. Uh, there was no tags on it and it didn't have any insurance. <laughs> so I got pulled over by an Oklahoma State trooper and I. Um, he come up to the car and he goes, I need to see your license and registration and insurance. And I gave him my license and he goes, well, I need the other documents too. I said, I don't have any. He goes, you don't have any registration for the vehicle? I go, no, sir. He goes, where are the tags? Um, I said, sir, it's my uh, grandfather's old farm truck. And he goes, do you have insurance at least? I go, no, sir. And he goes, son, step out of the car. And so I step out of the car and he walks me back to his patrol car and sits me in the front seat. And he's running my information and he says, uh, where are you going so fast? I was like, well, I work at Fort Gibson and I was going uh, to get to work. Uh, I work out there for last summer and I use the money to get school clothes and new cleats and stuff for football season for school starts. Um, he got the information back from a dispatch. And at that point in time, he looked at me and he said, you know, my son is the same age as you are. And I wish he would take this kind of initiative uh, and get a job and take care of himself like you're doing. Wow. He gave me my license back and told me to uh, slow down for him. So every day that summer that I saw him sitting in the median on Interstate 44, he'd wave at me, knowing that the only thing legal of that truck is me <laughs> in it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he really, like I said, he just was uh, all around. He's who we want out patrolling and doing the job. Mm -hmm. uh, those type of people. And uh, it, it wasn't a black state trooper. It was a, it was a white state trooper. And he was, mm -hmm. um, like I said, he was one of the people that uh, told me that, Hey, you know, we're not all cops are the same. Yeah. Yeah. And that connection with his son was uh, really telling. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, he saw the greater good uh, in the sense of um, it's kind of like what I tell some of the recruits when we get into our traffic law, um, you know, you pull that lady over that's got four kids in the car. Uh, she's a single mom and she doesn't have insurance or her license is suspended or something. I said, you know, you write her all those tickets. Who are you punishing? Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I said, you know, for some of us, you know, a $350 ticket is, is nothing, but for other families around uh, our nation, that's catastrophic yeah. uh, for them and those kids in the car and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it, it leads to credence to us telling these, these young, young recruits coming into the academy that, hey, you know, that's what discretion is for. Um, that officer used discretion on me, and that's the reason why I'm so, I'm so big on it now and, and how I teach it in the academy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I understand that this is the first academy at a historically black university or college, right? Yes. HBCU? Yes, we are the first uh, police academy on the campus of an HBCU, uh, which is huge in the sense of we didn't know that we were. We didn't oh. think that we were doing anything. Uh, it just only made sense. Um, even when I was at the sheriff's office, I always recruited uh, from Lincoln University for our intern program. Um, and I worked for the Missouri Sheriff's Training Academy as well uh, for a long stand, probably about you know, a decade or so. And um, I always thought, you know, it'd be neat to have a police academy on our campus like Central Missouri State. Uh, LETI is up at MU, but it's not actually on their campus. Uh, but we got to looking and we determined that, you know, no other HBCU out of the 107 HBCUs in the nation has a police academy uh, on their campus. And out of that 107, we, I believe, if I remember correctly, only 53 of them had criminal justice programs. Mm -hmm. And so uh, doing, just doing the research on this before we got ready to do it, mm -hmm. uh, we found all these things out and we didn't realize that, you know, wow, we're going to be transsetters for this. Speaking of criminal justice uh, degrees, uh, that was yours, wasn't it? Didn't you get a criminal justice degree at Lincoln back in the 90s? Yes, sir. So I, I was on the doctor plan. <laughs> so I got my bachelor's degree in criminal justice from Lincoln University. Uh, I have my master's uh, from Columbia College. Mm -hmm. And then I, I am in my last year of my doctoral program with North Central uh, Northeastern Central University uh, in their criminal justice and homeland security program for doctor. And where is that located or is that and online? It's on, it's, it's, well, it's actually, the college is actually located in San Diego, but it is an online program. Yeah. Well, I'll be calling you Dr. Hill here pretty soon. All right. I love yes, it. Yes, sir. I love it. Uh, other graduates along the line, uh, along the way have uh, matriculated to their PhDs, and uh, it's really fun to <laughs> to get to talk to them and say, "Well, Doctor, I don't know, Doctor, <laughs> that's great." Uh, so, the law enforcement uh, or going into criminal justice was that kind of a no brainer that that's I'm going to major in that because I'm inspired by this highway patrolman. Um, well, no, at first I was I was going to. Uh, switch schools from Lincoln University because I wanted to go into theology because my grandfather was our pastor and I'd always been our pastor and I, I wanted to get a degree in theology. Um, I don't really know what made me stick with other than I had had an interesting conversation with one of our professors who's no longer with us, Dr. Rob uh, yeah. at the time. Dr. Rob, uh, yeah. In the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. uh, and he just start telling me some things about, you know, the criminal justice program and that, you know, you know, give it a try. Cause he uh, worked for the, uh, parole and, uh, whatever the department is over at the, uh, for the yeah. state, didn't he? And he was also over the, uh, 
He was also on the board for uh, law enforcement for Jefferson City as well, too. So he did. He was a he did a lot of things uh, in the criminal justice realm, not just here in Jefferson City, but around the state as well. Uh, so he was kind of the person that talked me into didn't take much, but talked me into uh, getting going into the criminal justice program here at Lincoln. Well, beloved teacher um, died way too soon and uh, been missed by many. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Rob, thanks for bringing him up. So you were working as you went to school, right? Uh, in law enforcement as well. Some kind yes, of sir. internships uh, you had going or how did that work out? So I start, I always tell people I started my criminal justice uh, career at the walls at old JCCC. So I started working at JCCC back in 1996. Uh, and then uh, while I was going through, while I was working at JCCC, I was going to school here at Lincoln and I was going through the police academy too as well. So mm -hmm. I finished, I completed the police academy in 1998. Um, so at that point in time, I left uh, the Department of Corrections and went to the Cole County Sheriff's Office. And that's where all the magic starts to happen, as I say. Tell me some stories about this uh, Sheriff's Office uh, experiences, because at one time you were in the running to be the sheriff, weren't you? Uh, yeah, actually, I ran for sheriff in uh, 2016. Yeah. Um, once I started working at the sheriff's office, um, it started to become a dream of mine to be the actual sheriff. Um, I worked my way up through the ranks. I started out as a jailer and working in the jail, uh, the old jail, before they built the new one. Uh, I left the jail in 2000, uh, correction, I left the jail in 99 uh, to go out on the road and be a road deputy. And I was a road deputy until 2003. In 2003, I got promoted to sergeant. Um, did about two year stint as a sergeant. And then we had uh, some um, unethical issues happen in the jail at that point in time, uh, around 2004. Uh, so I went back down to the jail uh, to run the jail uh, as we were having some problems and I have a lot of correctional experience. Um, so I ran the jail for about a year. And at that point in time, we lost uh, a sheriff resigned, uh, Haymire resigned and then we had uh, um, George Brooks that came in and then uh, some tragic things happened to uh, George Brooks. Uh, and then at that point in time, um, we had several sheriffs in between there to include Gary Kemper. Um, I can't remember the old prosecutor, Bill Tackett. Mm. Um, and uh, I think we had like one more in there, <laughs> somewhere in there uh, before Greg White took over. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when Greg White took over in uh, 20, 2005, 2006, um, I had made mention to him that, you know, my intention is to run for sheriff when you're done. Mm -hmm. um, and so he brought in his chief deputy, uh, which is John Wheeler, a great friend of mine still. We still work together closely. Uh, and then John had expressed uh, interest to running for sheriff as well. Mm. So uh, long story short, uh, we worked together uh, to make, you know, things better for the office and get things together. And we always knew that we were going to run against each other, me and John Wheeler. <laughs> uh, and we, it's so funny to this day, we still have people come and tell us this, that was the cleanest election. That was the cleanest race we've ever seen anyone run. Uh, <laughs> and I always tell them, it's like, you know, it's kind of really hard to run against your boss when you're still working for your boss. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but uh, we put Cole County first. Uh, we put the people's needs first. No one wanted to hear us out here uh, bantering each other. Uh, that right. just shows her character. Right. Uh, and both of us have really, you know, our character means the most, uh, how people see me, how people see my family, how I carry myself. Uh, so I wasn't going to go out there and try to blow out somebody else's candle to mm -hmm. make mine shine brighter. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think both of us had that, uh, had that philosophy. Mm -hmm. So he ended up beating me handsomely. Uh, he ended up getting the uh, Republican nominee uh, for that. There was not a Democratic uh, option for sheriff at that time. And so uh, he's still sheriff today. All right. Uh, he wanted me to be his chief deputy. I accepted to be chief deputy because uh, at that time he was number two and I was number three. And so it, we just was going to move it up. Mm -hmm. But then uh, my alma mater was looking for a, uh, a chief of police at that time. And I talked to my wife about it. And she was like, you know, you went to school to run your own shop. <laughs> you know, uh, why don't you put in for it? Let's see what happens. And here I am. Here you are. And so you started as police chief what year? Uh, 2016. Oh, 2016. Okay. Just after I retired. I thought I, I had, I, I didn't remember having you on that job when I was still there. So that when did you retire? Because I, I didn't start until December of 2016. December yeah. 1st, 2016. I left in June, 2015. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But you were around. I, I knew of you still, and I knew about your race and voted for you and whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> do you, you. Re do you remember uh, back in sheriff days? Uh, did did you all let people ride with you on rounds uh, around the county? Uh, yes, we did. Uh, we did that here, and uh, we also did it. Uh, we do that here at Lincoln too, as well. Uh -huh. I'm thinking of a guy named Jim Rhodes. Yes. <laughs> Me and Jim uh, are still really good friends and we always send each other messages on uh, Facebook and stuff. And uh, he's a, he's a really good actor. <laughs> yes. A fellow we, actor of mine. Yes. Uh, so he's come out and helped us a couple of times uh, as far as, uh, you know, role playing and things like that. And uh, I still believe he works for the Cole County jail uh, helping transport inmates. I think he does. He's, uh, he's been a, a dedicated man for, uh, um, all these years and, and a, a teacher of uh, karate, right? Isn't he? Yep, uh, taekwondo. Uh, ta is it? I think it's taekwondo. Okay. I, I get those confused sometimes. Yeah. He, and he, and his wife have been on this show. So, uh, uh, good. It's good to keep little connections like that going as well. So I'm going to take a short uh, break and reintroduce you as I say hi to listeners, uh, wherever you may be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry here on KOPN, your community radio station out of Columbia, Missouri, 89.5 on the dial. Uh, KOPN has been around Columbia since 1973. We're about to celebrate our 50th birthday anniversary and uh, we hope that uh, you continue your valuable support of this station uh, and uh, listen to the tremendous uh, diversity of shows that we have both uh, ones that come from the national networks as well as so many of our our locally produced shows like this one 
both talk and and music and uh, uh, just anything that you might be thinking about. Plus, if you think you have uh, a show in mind that uh, would go over well with our community, hey, uh, talk to Jet Ainsworth, our new executive director out at KOPN, and uh, pitch him a, a proposal, and we might get you on the air just as soon, uh, uh, just as well. So, uh, <laughs> hey, uh, my guest today is Gary Hill, chief of police down at Lincoln University. Um, he almost uh, he almost passed my class back in 1992, but something about attendance, I don't know. Uh, and now <laughs> he is uh, also the founder and director. <laughs> uh, so it's funny that you remind me of that. Okay. Uh, founder and director of Lulita, Lincoln University's Law Enforcement Training Academy, uh, the first uh, to be housed at an HBCU in the country. And I'd like to learn a lot more about uh, the details of your academy, because I think there may be some listeners out here that it might trigger an interest and some way to get some more candidates in for you. So I know you had the idea way back. Uh, and then you say you talked to someone on campus about how to pursue this? How does that work? How do you how do you talk on campus to get a whole new program like this? So originally when I came over, Dr. Rome was still here as president. And I he asked me what was strategically, what did I want to see with the police department and you know, and how I want to see campus. And I told him I wanted the police department to be seen as a, a, a real police department, as a viable force, not just campus security. Uh, wanted the respect of the law enforcement uh, agencies surrounding us as well. And I said, I also would like to see us start an actual academy uh, on Lincoln University's campus because we have probably 250, 260 some odd students that are in the criminal justice program. Uh, so to have an option for them, especially once they reach the age of 19 years old, to be able to go into the academy and then uh, upon turning 21, if they get hired by an agency, then they can be uh, commissioned by that agency to be able to have a job coming out of college uh, at, you know, average pay of a police officer in Missouri is roughly around $40,000. That's 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 pretty good. And so I pitched the idea to him at that time, uh, but there was so much turmoil and things going on at the police department that I could not pursue that until I got things straight here. Hmm. Uh, so fast forward to Dr. Woolfolk taking over as president uh, in my one-on-one -on -one session, I told her what I wanted to do. And she uh, jumped at the idea, thought it was a great idea. And uh, she said, uh, do what you need to do to make it happen. Hmm. So I started, uh, talking to all the contacts that I've made over the last 20 some years in law enforcement and with people and asking them what they thought and uh, talking with the Department of Public Safety. Uh, Sandy Karsten's uh, people at the Department of Public Safety have been excellent to us as well as Colonel Olson over there at the Missouri State Highway Patrol Superintendent, uh, as far as helping us and giving us support on where we need to be in order to have a, an academy and have a, a good academy. Um, and so, we started putting things together. 
uh, the curriculum. Uh, Joe Steenbergen, who's our academic director, and he's still a criminal justice, uh, assistant criminal justice professor here at Lincoln University. He came up with the idea that we take some of the classes because we were just going to have an academy at this point in time. We weren't going to give college credit hours or anything else like that. Oh. We were going to give the class A certification. And a class A certification allows them to be a police officer anywhere in the state of Missouri, with the exception of those police departments that have their own police academy that want you to go through their police academy, mm -hmm. like the Highway Patrol, uh, Kansas City PD, and St. Louis PD. But they want you to go through their own academy, even though you'll get the same license from us. And so with, with talking to them, uh, Joe said, let's make it so they get 15 college credit hours. I go, so how do we do that? So Joe took, uh, Joe Steenbergen took some uh, classes that we no longer offered at Lincoln University, but was still on our books hmm. and uh, looked at the lesson plans. And then I gave him the lesson plans that we get from the Department of Public Safety and we mirrored them together mm -hmm. so that we, the, all the stuff that we take out of the Department of Public Safety is the same, some of the stuff that we take in these classes. So we were able to make it so that you get 15 college credit hours out of this. And if you're a full-time student, you're able to use financial aid to go into the academy. So as a standalone academy, you usually have to pay for it out of your pocket like I did when I went to the police academy. Uh, unless you go to, an, uh, unless you get hired by a police department that's willing to pay for you to go to the academy. Columbia PD does, Jefferson City, Usually the bigger agencies with 50 or more officers will pay for you to go to the academy. Mm. If not, you have to pay for it on your own. But to be able to use it as part of your educational benefits, i.e. the VA, uh, student loans or Pell Grant, things like that, makes it a lot affordable for people to go to the academy. And so we pieced all that together and we packaged it up and submitted an application to the Department of Public Safety to become the 20th police academy in the state of Missouri. In doing so, uh, the governor heard wind of what we were trying to do. And, and uh, when he looked at our, um, our application packet, realized that we were gonna be the first HBCU in the nation uh, to have a police academy on his campus with our whole goal of increasing my, the minority footprint in law enforcement. Um, has been a thing that law enforcement agencies have been trying to do forever. So Department of Public Safety uh, signed off on it. Uh, the governor signed off on it, and our initial budget was $50,000. <laughs> so um, and that was our initial budget. Police departments from around the nation sent us equipment, uh, old used equipment and things that they're not using anymore, uh, highway patrol, surplus stuff, uh, and then some of the stuff that we had surplus-wise as well. Uh, we happen to have the space on campus uh, to be able to, we revamped uh, some space and turned it into the actual academy itself. Um, and things just kind of took, took place. Uh, I uh, advertised and went and talked to a bunch of people individually uh, to be instructors at the academy. And the reason why I wanted to do that is because I wanted to, I wanted to know who's teaching what. And what I mean by that is oftentimes uh, people go to the academies and you hear horror stories about some of the things that they're, they're teaching oh. uh, in the sense of uh, it's not us against them. Okay? The mm -hmm. people are us and we are the people. And that's <laughs> one of the things that, that I stand on in our, in our academy here. Uh, it's not, you know, anyone can go out and find crime, okay? anybody, but can you do things to improve your community that you're supposed to be protecting? 
Mm -hmm. and you find ways to solve problems in your communities. That's, you know, one of the big things. If we solve those problems, then we'll stop some of the crime. They all work hand in hand. And so that's a lot of the things that we teach here at our academy as far as de-escalation. And so that was what I pushed to DPS, uh, to the president um, of the university at that time on why this program was going to be so important, uh, because we wanted to really and truly teach community policing. Now, we got to teach them how to shoot and how to defend themselves and all that other stuff, but that's not our focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you oftentimes uh, think about police academies and how many hours they have. We've been up under scrutiny with that because a lot of other professions, like my wife, she's a, she owns a, a salon. She's a stylist. She has to have 1,800 some odd hours of training uh, to be to do her job. And she goes, you guys only had to have 600 that's crazy. <laughs> and then so what I explained to her, you know, and then you see a lot of the other academies that have, you know, upwards of 1100, 1200 hours of worth of training. You got to pay attention to where that training is, because if you look at the training hours, some of those academies will have 200 hours of PT added to the 600 that puts you at 800. Mm. You'll have, you know, 150, 200 hours of firearms training you know, that puts them at, you know, a thousand, you know, and then they'll put in, you know, some other little things. So uh, if they're heavy on traffic enforcement, then they'll do more of the traffic stuff. So it just depends on, on where you, where you're going to put those hours. Mm-hmm. Um, we focus a lot on uh, cultural diversity, um, ethics. Ethics is a big one. We usually go over on hours on that. That was usually an eight hour course. Uh, but, you know, you got to draw the line somewhere of uh, showing videos and talking about things that we've seen over our years as far as why people are on the fence about us. You know, Mm. we want to still try to keep it positive Mm -hmm. as far as what we're doing, because right now uh, with this and in creating the academy, uh, it was we want to get more people into law enforcement and especially minority people. And so how do you do that in today's atmosphere? And so with, you know, with everything that's going on. So one of the things that we talk about the most is I have to constantly tell people, uh, based off of the labor statistics from last year, law enforcement doesn't even rank in the top 20 of most dangerous jobs. And but because of the media and everything else, you and then not only the media, but us, we're always going around going, look how dangerous our job is. Look at me. Look at me. You know, and I had to deal with this yesterday and this yesterday and this yesterday. Um, Yes, it has its dangers, but then there are many of us that go through our whole career and retired, never had to shoot anybody, never had to get into a fight with anybody or anything else like that. And you think about the number of contacts that we make uh, a year, traffic stops, we make a year that go perfectly and flawless. And so that's one of the reasons why we don't rank that. And so we try to push that as a recruitment tool, because right now people think this job is so dangerous and why would you ever want to do something like this. And so we push the service aspect of it. If you don't, who will? And will you like that person? Is that the person that we need out there on our streets, in our communities, doing the job that you could probably do better? And so that's kind of what we push here, especially to our students that come from some of the inner cities uh, where the police aren't as good. Um, One of the things that broke my heart when I first got here, well, not when I first got two years ago, we had an incident where there was a shooting over there uh, near the link. Mm-hmm. And after we did, um, after we did 
cleaned everything up and got everything situated and calmed down. We had a uh, discussion with the students afterwards about everything that happened. And the thing that broke my heart the most was I had several students stand up and say, I have never ever seen police show up that fast. I've never seen ambulances and fire departments show up that fast. That broke my heart. You know, just to show them telling us how much they appreciated us being there and getting there so fast and everything else like that. And so that kind of gives me the motivation uh, to ensure that we continue to push that kind of servant attitude uh, to the recruits that we're pushing out of our academy here. So it, it broke your heart because you were becoming aware of the history that well, it had that it had been much slower in the past or tell me why it broke your heart so it broke my heart in the sense of that not all police officers are giving their communities that they serve the same level of response that we do here in jefferson city ah yeah okay good i go back sometimes uh, in my memory bank to uh, the early 90s when there was a uh, suicide at jc high school and uh, it happened in the classroom actually it was just right after or right before you came to uh, jeff city and it it had not happened before in anybody's memory in a classroom at the high school or at any public school setting and nobody knew what to do nobody i mean reporters were there <laughs> and it was just chaos you know no organization no plan which was a wake-up call at that time for getting together and talking about the whole issue of of suicide one that boy had brought a gun to school and in his backpack he had been telling people he was going to do this for weeks nobody believed him because he was sort of the class clown and uh yeah and then uh, I, just to sort of finish out the story uh the, when the ambulance came picked him up they drove him to columbia because he was still living they reported the whole way there. He kept saying, don't let me die. Don't let me die. Don't let me die. And the way I learned that story is because of a student in my classroom that was in that classroom that morning and told the whole class, this story of Donnie and, and how all this happened. And, and it, it's always a a hard story to talk about because there were like five suicides that spring, like in a three month period, and a sixth grader over at Bel Air. Uh, so uh, I know this is not a, a main subject for you and your class, but I'm sure it, it comes up is. as a subject. Oh, well, tell me about it. What... It actually is a main subject. So uh, like some of the other academies around the state, uh, our recruits go through a 40-hour crisis intervention training uh, put on by the Missouri Department of Corrections. Their team comes over and teaches a 40-hour block of how to deal with suicidal, because uh, that happens. You're exactly right. That, that happens a lot. 
um, there was a there was a study put out about people that jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, and the ones that survived, they were interviewed, and just about all of them stated that on the way down, they figured they they knew they had screwed up, and they hoped that they didn't die. They had changed their mind mm-hmm. on the way down, and mm-hmm. a lot of those people uh, that do. Uh, don't realize that and sometimes it's too late and they don't survive but a lot of those that did survive said that they had changed their mind uh right after they did whatever act that they did to try to unalive themselves mm-hmm. um so we teach uh cit we teach uh, how to deal with uh communication obstacles whether people have mental disabilities uh we're probably right at about 80 some odd hours of the academy just in that subject of mental health and mm. suicides Mm-hmm. Uh, because that that is so important because we have to make sure that we have the right people dealing with uh, people who have those types of, especially when we're talking about our, our military veterans and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to make sure that the officers have the tools in uh, the recruits, I should say, have the tools in their belt to be able to handle that and deal with that and try to get a positive outcome because, uh, you know, somebody, those people uh, are relatives to somebody, you know, they, you know, it's a, we don't want them to think that, you know, their life means absolutely nothing. And so we try to make sure that we put the recruits uh, in their shoes. And they do a really good job with this at CIT and CIT program. They bring in actors um, and uh, these actors, uh, some of them have been through some of the roles that they play, uh, i.e. have tried to commit suicide and things like that. Uh, so they do a really good job. And one of the other uh, good jobs that they do uh, is the uh, schizophrenia. Um, so they do, uh, uh, this part of the academy is probably like an hour or two hours long or so where they make the recruits wear these headphones and in their headphones, they hear all these whispers of people telling them to do things. And at the same time, they're asking the recruits to do, uh, other things that's going on. And then you realize when you hear these whispers and everything, man, is this what that sounds like? Is this what these people are going through that are constantly hearing these voices and stuff? And it is, it is, uh, they just do a really good job at putting the recruits uh, in a position to understand what these people are going through. So uh, we made sure that that was a, a staple of our program. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, what is your um, experience? since you've been chief of police with uh, suicide here in, in Jeff City, have you noticed any upticks like from because of COVID or because of economy or? or we've, we've always had, colleges are notorious for uh, suicides hmm. uh, or at least attempted suicides because again, some of these people are coming into an environment that they know nothing about. Never hmm. left mom, dad's home. Now here they are out on their own. Um, and some of these kids, and you worked here long enough to know that some of the kids that we have going to school here slept from couch to couch until they got here, mm-hmm. um, had no place to go. And, if, and when school in the summer's out, if they can't get into summer school or something, they have no place to go. Right. Uh, and so we offer here on campus, uh, those kids who are indigent, as we call it, we give them a discounted rate to be able to stay here on campus until the next semester because mm-hmm. they have no place to go. Um, Is that something new? I, I don't recall that. Having uh, been our since I've been here, I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's usually ran through the housing department, mm-hmm. ran through uh, residential life. Yeah. Um, and so if they're, if they're indigent, then we'll usually let them stay here on campus. Um, mm-hmm. We see a lot of kids that have aged out of the foster care program to where 
they have no place to go. The, the foster care parents don't want to deal with them anymore or the relationship was strained. And so we have an obligation, uh, not only as our department, because we have to work a lot with residential life, but as a university to make sure that we take care of those people. Oh, and wonderful. So, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, COVID hmm. uh, caused, the, caused a lot of, uh, uh, during that time, we probably, I'd say that semester of COVID, we probably had about five to 10 people, I would say, that that semester that needed our assistance in uh, mental health uh, to where we had to assist them in getting uh, some help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, glad you were there to do that. Yeah. We are too. Let me uh, reintroduce you, Gary Hill, Chief of Police down at Lincoln University uh, Police Department, uh, founder and uh, director of LULITA, Lincoln University Law Enforcement Training Academy, uh, the first in the country at an HBCU. And uh, while I introduce you, I want to say hi to our listeners, uh, wherever you may be listening today, either in your car, at work, at home, uh, maybe you're tuning into a podcast uh, because all of our shows are available to you at our website for two weeks. And then some of our shows, uh, we actually go ahead and, and uh, put into our podcast uh, archive and I you can access it, local news and social artistry, uh, the last 25 shows. Uh, so um, find some way, as you have already done, to uh, listen in. And it's always good to get feedback, by the way. <laughs> you know, so many of us programmers, uh, is anybody out there listening? I, I wonder. If <laughs> and then you'll bump into somebody and say, hey, I really like your show. Oh, wow. Somebody's listening. So, you know, anytime you get a chance to give any of our local programmers some feedback on their show, uh, it's really appreciated. And uh, um, whatever support you can give to uh, your community radio station, KOPN.org. Um, so. Dick Dalton here, back with Glocal News and Social Artistry. My guest, Chief uh, of Police Gary Hill down at Lincoln University in Jefferson City. We've been talking about uh, some of the training that uh, the, how, what do you call them? Uh, can't, the, uh, they're not officers yet. They're, they're recruits. Recruits, all right. Yeah. It's that the recruits are, are going through. So you have recruits that are both in college in the criminal justice program and you have recruits that are just there for the academy both is that the way it works yes that's correct and so uh we have some people who are in the academy they're sponsored by law enforcement agencies who are already working say as a jailer or uh admin or something like that who are already working for law enforcement agencies um and we have our students too so our program is specifically set up for the working adult uh, we are not a academy that runs uh, seven o'clock in the morning until uh, four o'clock in the afternoon. We, we don't do straight 40 hours. Our program actually starts at five o'clock in the evening and we run to 10 to 11 o'clock at night, Monday through Friday. And then we do Saturdays and then also some Sundays like firearms, uh, emergency driving and CIT runs through the weekend as well on some of those uh, particular ones. But we're geared so that people who want to change their careers, the working adults in our within the area, mm -hmm. that they have an opportunity to get into law enforcement because most of these people have already 
have bills, have a family, have obligations, and they can't just quit their job and go to the police academy. Uh, nor, or they didn't get hired by a particular agency who was going to put them through the academy. See, those that are put through the academy by an agency are being paid to be there. Uh, this is their job right now to get through the academy and graduate. Uh, so those that don't, uh, that pay for it on their own, usually have a full-time job in the daytime. But what makes them, uh, they have a little bit of an advantage over those who are, uh, who are paid by an agency to go. And that is, they get to go work for whoever they want to go work for when they're done. Mm -hmm. They're kind of like a free agent, if you will, in law enforcement. Uh, they can go and they don't have to sign a contract with anyone because the cat they pay for their academy and things like that. So they get to go work for pretty much whoever they want to go work for. Uh, and that's what we see uh, a lot with our recruits. Um, we've had a lot of our recruits go back home to St. Louis area and are doing well. We even had uh, one young lady uh, who's at Ferguson PD. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, she's doing very well there as well. Uh, North County, uh, Webster Groves. And so, um, and now we are venturing out. Some of our recruits are going to the Kansas City uh, area as well. So part of the goal of this was to increase diversity in the police forces of our country. Um, that doesn't mean that you only take black recruits, correct? but you do have a majority of black recruits. Is that uh, your experience so far? Yeah. So what we've seen, uh, with, I think so far with the one class, it's kind of uh, even Stephen with the class that just graduated in December. But in the first class, and usually uh, blacks are the majority instead of the minority in our in our academy. Uh, like when I went to the academy, there was 26 people in my academy class uh, in 1997, and it was me and one other uh, black guy in there. Now, there were two females as well, because we consider females to be minority as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been doing pretty, uh, uh, pretty well here as far as I think uh, the, this year that we've been in existence as far as uh, putting minorities, qualified minorities out into the job pool for law enforcement. I think we were, were I think we may have tied all the other academies in the state oh. for doing that. Uh, already with this this year. So um, it's an interesting world that we're in. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there's so much uh, feeling that uh, gets emoted through television and different media uh, methods that are out there. You really have a in a sense, uh, an uphill uh, challenge, don't you? You know, I thought I would, um, but the, uh, but no, there, we have lists of people who are wanting to get into the academy that are either waiting for money or waiting to get back in school, uh, who are minorities. Um, the best article that anyone could probably read right now to kind of understand some of the problem, uh, the reason why there is such an uphill uh, issue is uh, the Chicago Police Department, the Chicago Attorney General, Inspector General's put out a, uh, a paper, a white paper on um, the demographics of people that apply to be police officers in Chicago. Mm. 
And it is found that 80, 86% of their applicants were black. Really? They were just, yeah, they just didn't get in because of subjective questioning, uh, who do you, you know, and a whole bunch of things that were going on there on who's the gatekeeper of those particular law enforcement agencies that are allowing people in. And so we see that and we we say, you know, in law enforcement, we want we want we want minorities, we want minorities, but we also have to look at us chiefs and sheriffs. We have to look at who are our gatekeepers, meaning who's doing the interviewing, who's doing the hiring, who's going through and everything, because a lot of times it's not the HR. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they're doing the interviewing and hiring and then sending it to HR saying we want this person. And so we as law enforcement, uh, we have to look at who the gatekeepers are uh, within our Communities, because there are a whole lot of people out there who want to be in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, I think about when I was trying to get in law enforcement in '93. I took the Missouri State Highway Patrol test. I failed. Um, I took the, uh, and then I was the tried to apply. I tried to apply at Jefferson City in '94, and I got my third interview, and then uh, they hired somebody else. And so you run into all those things and, you know, a person goes through that enough, uh, especially minority, they just decide, you know what, I got to get a job. I got to go work somewhere else and decide right. that maybe law enforcement isn't for me. Mm -hmm. And so those are a lot of the issues that uh, uh, we're running into. Mm -hmm. And then you have to look at no matter what I teach these recruits. Uh, and one of the things that I tell them uh, is you have to be prepared to work in all environments. And that means that all Asian, all white, all Latino, all, all black, you have to be able to work in all environments in this in this day and age, law enforcement. So that's one of the things that I teach them the most uh, because I want them to understand that as a black person like myself, um, Cole County Sheriff's Office has been in existence since 1821. I was the first black supervisor ever at that agency. You know, so you, when you think about those type of things and those are the type of things that we talk and sort of when I was mentioning the challenge that you have, what was in my mind was the challenge of perception by all of us that are looking at you <laughs> <laughs> or looking at the generic police department. And we're hearing that, gee, you all get all these weapons and you got all these, all this militarization and all of this. Wow. It's like, it, it's a whole... <laughs> And there's some truth to some of that, particularly in certain locales. Um, so I'd like for you to speak just a little bit to us to help us. I'm already thinking better of you. Because <laughs> <laughs> I love the, the whole community. You're, you're such a community man. <laughs> It, it community has been good to me. And, so and the philosophy. Yeah. You're, you're, you're exuding this interrelationship with so many communities. So, so coming from a guy that, um, so at the sheriff's office, I was on the SWAT team from 2000 until 2005, 2006, 2006, I became the commander of the SWAT team. Mm. Uh, so I would constantly have to go around and talk to people about, you know, why do we need certain weapons and what do we need uh, this and this for? Um, so one of the biggest first thing I would start off to, especially when it comes to militarization and some of the militarized weapons that we have, the first thing that I say to them is this. When it comes to those type of weapons, your tax dollars have already paid for. Them. 
we get them free from the military. Your tax dollars have already paid for them. If not, then they'll mess around and end up selling them uh, to some third world country or something like that. So uh, unfortunately, uh, in the day and age we live in, some of that stuff is necessary. Maybe not in small town USA, uh, but again, remember, law enforcement are handling the things that you don't want to know about while you're sleeping in your bed at night. Hmm. Uh, so there are specialized units that do that. Hmm. And so another thing that I always say is think about your son or daughter who is in law enforcement. What gear do you want them to have to deal with the everyday stresses of what's going on out in our communities? Hmm. What gear would you want them to have? Do you want them to have when I have this armor and these long rifles and making a shot with a long rifle is a whole easier than making a shot with a handgun, you know? And so those are the, the aspects that we have to look at. Then we have to look at what type of work are we actually doing? Uh, if you live in a town of, of 2000, 3000, unless it's on the border, do you, do you really need an MRAP? Do you really need an armored car? You got a police department of, of, of five or six people or something like that. Uh, so the justification part is, is the hardest part of it. Where we've seen a lot of our failures in law enforcement, it comes from uh, our leadership. And what I mean by our leadership is um, oftentimes when it comes to getting that type of equipment, uh, a lot of leaders are going off of, this is what the officer said I, that we need and they're my boots on the ground. Instead of doing a, a accurate and valid assessment of the type of operations that we engage in on daily to say, eh, we don't necessarily need that and if we do, then we'll call Missouri State Highway Patrol or someone else that you know are that train a whole lot more, and are capable and are actual uh, operable with the equipment that they have, as opposed to us just getting it and then uh, saying that we have it. Um, so a, a lot of times the gear that we get is free through the military. It's called the 1033 program, uh, and we're able to ask for that. Uh, that way we don't have to get sales tax and try to get money out of the city or our citizens to try to buy that equipment to, mm -hmm. to get what we need. Okay, so. good. As we're going to close in this next few minutes, um, I'd like to know how you're networking with not just Jeff City, but Jeff City, as well as around the nation, because it seems to me that you have a philosophy and situation that others are curious about and want to know what you have to say. Absolutely. So we, of course, you know, you probably know this, we've already spread to, uh, we already have a site at Harristow, which is our sister mm -hmm. HBCU. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that right now we're uh, working with Sheriff Betts, who's the St. Louis City Sheriff, uh, to uh, post certify all of his people and some others there in that area. Uh, I've worked with uh, the city council of Pennsylvania, of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, there, uh, uh, Chairman Jones there, and uh, trying to get the other HBCUs, the other Lincoln University and Cheney University, which are HBCUs in Pennsylvania, to uh, start a program there similar to ours. Um, last year, I uh, did a presentation for the White House HBCU initiative. Uh, yeah. on what we do and how we do and the future of providing programs like this and how HBCUs can provide continuing education credit hours to law enforcement around the state in areas of uh, diversity, uh, police and minority communities and things like that. Uh, so slowly but surely, uh, uh, making my way around uh, different areas of the nation, trying to 
just give advice when people have questions on how we were able to make this program so successful. Um, but the, the biggest uh, impact is to make this program successful is you gotta have the right director. You gotta have somebody that's willing to do whatever it takes to make it happen. Like I said, I started this program with a budget of $50,000. Mm -hmm. I use all adjuncts. I don't have any full-time people. I use police officers who are working in the field, uh, who I know personally, who I know are going to uh, teach my philosophy as far as, you know, we are one. There's no separation between us and the community where someone's mother, father, brother, sister, or what have you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, teach, hang out with the community. You don't hang out with other cops. We have to be able to stay connected with the people that we serve. Mm -hmm. uh, when you hang out with other cops, you oftentimes end up, uh, developing that us versus them yeah well that's a great slogan to end with we are one I, i'd like to see that bumper sticker on <laughs> every police car <laughs> that's that's not a bad that's not a bad idea <laughs> oh well you it's your idea i'm just uh expanding it a little bit and uh, gary our time is up uh gary hill police chief down at lincoln university doing such a wow what a job uh i just i'm i just applaud you and your team and uh, your vision and and what lies ahead because uh, one of these days you're going to be dr hill and uh, we'll uh, have some coffee and talk <laughs> over some more things so thank you gary hill this has been uh very educational and and very uplifting and i'm going to say to you listeners uh remember wherever you are that is your world Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful and more loving than you found it, because if it is to be, it is up to us. And we are all one. <laughs> Take care and uh, talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. <laughs>